Good morning, everyone. It's great to see you. And uh, a special welcome, if you're like me, you're visiting this morning. Um, it's great that you're here, and we hope and trust that God will bless you through his word. Uh, I'm going to read to us um, from the letter of 2 John, and you'll find it on the inside of your corner post, or you might like to open your Bibles, please. Um, just as I do this, I'd like to just ask you a question. Sorry, to, I hope that this doesn't embarrass anyone, but can you put up your hands um, if you've ever heard a sermon on 2 John? couple people. Okay. Interesting, isn't it? It's a, a neglected part of God's Word, but as I think you'll see this morning, um, it's a fantastic part of God's Word. And, I, and I'm sure, by God's grace, we'll really speak to you. So I'm going to read from 2 John, the whole book, and this is God's Word. The elder, to the lady chosen by God and to her children whom I love in the truth. And not I only, but also all who know the truth. Because of the truth, which lives in us and will be with us forever. It has given me great joy to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as the Father commanded us. And now, dear lady, I'm not writing you a new command, but one we have had from the beginning. I ask that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk in obedience to his commands. As you have heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. I say this because many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch out that you do not lose what you have worked for, but that you may be rewarded fully. Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ, does not have God. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not take them into your house or welcome them. Anyone who welcomes them shares in their wicked work. I have much to write to you, but I do not want to use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to visit you and talk with you face to face, so that our joy may be complete. The children of your sister, who is chosen by God, send their greetings. 2 John is the second shortest book in the whole of the New Testament. The only one that is shorter is the one that follows it, 3 John, which we'll look at next week, God willing. But the thing is, is don't let either of them fool you because of their size. You see, just because they're short doesn't mean that they don't have an awful lot to say. 
In fact, I like to think of 2 John and 3 John like the equivalent of two little sticks of spiritual dynamite. That is, just like a stick of dynamite is small, but when you light it, it can have an enormous effect, so too this tiny part of the Bible carries with it an enormous amount of spiritual potential because they address the issues that go to the very heart of what it means to know and follow Jesus. And the really amazing thing is that it does all of that in the space of a basically about half a page. So it really is the case, like the old saying says, that good things come in small packages. Now, as you can see from your outlines, the whole letter can be divided into three parts and they're all connected to the central idea of truth, namely knowing the truth, verses 1 to 3, walking in the truth, verses 4 to 6, and then finally discerning the truth in verses 7 to 11. The letter opens, though, with John introducing himself as a Presbyterian, I'm sorry, as the elder. And the reason why this is so is because this was the guy, along with his brother James, who wanted the honour of sitting at Jesus' right or left. And significantly, initially at least, he was motivated by an incredible amount of self-interest or selfish ambition. But by the time that Jesus was finished with him, he had been completely transformed. He was more concerned with serving others than he was in promoting himself. That's an issue that John will pick up in the following letter. Notice that John also refers to the church as the chosen lady. Now, if you take a look at verse 13, you'll see that John refers to their sister church as well. So this particular letter is being addressed to a group of believers rather than, I think, to a specific individual. It's that the church is the bride of Christ. It's his spouse. And that's why he refers to her as his chosen or literally as his elect lady. The first subject that John addresses, though, is that Christian people are people who have come to know the truth. That is, it's not just a matter of personal opinion or subjective preference, but what you and I have come to put our faith in is historically and objectively true. In the first four verses, the term truth is mentioned no less than five times. For instance, John says in verse 1 that he loves them in the truth. And then he goes on to say that it's not only he who loves them, but everyone else who knows the truth as well. And then in verse 2, he says that the reason why he feels this way about them is because of the truth which lives in us and will be with us forever. What a great promise that is of God's continual love and faithfulness, isn't it? As John records, Jesus is saying in, in his gospel, My sheep listen to my voice and I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. 
Following on from this in verse 3, he says that grace, mercy and peace will be with us in truth and love. In other words, John wants to assure them of their eternal security. That once we have been saved by Christ, we can never lose our salvation. Or as John MacArthur rightly says, if you could lose your salvation, you would. But because Christ holds us in his hands, he'll never let us go. Grace, mercy and peace in truth will be with us forever. I recently came across this beautiful quote by the Puritan Cotton Mather who says this, You can in no way more trouble or burden the Father than by your unkindness in not believing in his love. Let me just repeat that to you again because it can sound a little complicated at first. You can in no way more trouble or burden the Father than by your unkindness in not believing in his love. What a marvellous thing it is to rest assured in the certainty of God's love and grace. That he who saved you while you were still his enemy will keep you in his hands. The final mention of truth by John, though, is found in verse 4. And it's where he says, It has given me great joy to hear that some of your children are what? Walking in the truth, just as the Father commanded us. Now, all of this is pretty clear, but it's a pretty huge thing to say, isn't it? I mean, we live in a day and age uh, in our society where many would want to say that truth is relative. That the only thing that is absolute is that there are no absolutes. Which is a little ironic because that's an absolute statement. Often want to say to people when they go, there are, there are no absolutes. I want to say to them, are you absolutely sure? <laughs> a lot of people think that it's arrogant to claim that we know what is right or wrong. And this isn't just a problem that we face today. Remember when Jesus appeared before Pilate? And Jesus said this, For this reason I was born, and for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. For everyone on the side of truth listens to me. And then how did Pilate respond? He said, what is truth? But Jesus says that that's part of the reason why he came. A friend and I were talking about the gospel with a young man studying law at Sydney University. And somewhat frustratingly, uh, he was completely unwilling to acknowledge that there was such a thing as objective truth. I, I said to him at one point, I said, but you're, you're a lawyer. You, you know, you're studying law. How are you going to prove in court whether or not somebody who is innocent or guilty, something happened or, or didn't? Of all of the professions, surely yours rests on the credibility of evidence. No, he said, my task is not proof, but one of persuasion. It doesn't matter whether someone 
is innocent or guilty. It's just a matter of whether or not I can persuade the jury that he or she is. Well, at this point, to be honest, I sort of gave up. Uh, But the person that I was with immediately saw an opportunity. He said to him, so do you think that the moon is made out of cheese? And uh, I thought it was a bit of a silly question. I'm looking at my mate. Uh, But the guy that we were talking to immediately took the bait. Of course I don't. Do you think I'm stupid? Now, to be honest, I was starting to have my doubts about the evidence. But my friend proceeded, but if the truth is relative, like you're saying, then how do you know that the moon isn't made out of cheese? To which the young man immediately replied, because somebody has gone to the moon and they've come back with a moon rock. To which my friend then immediately countered, so what if someone came from God and revealed to you what God was like? Would you believe? Of course I would, he said. But who's ever done that? (laughs) Interestingly, as soon as we started to talk to him about Jesus and that Jesus is God incarnate, the Son of God who has come to earth, he said, I don't want to talk about Jesus. I'll talk about anyone else or anything else you guys want to talk about. I just don't want to talk about him. It reminds you, doesn't it, that we are all truth suppressors, as Paul says in Romans 1. That from the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his divine nature have been clearly seen so that men are without excuse. But we suppress the truth. The question that we really need to ask ourselves then is, so what does it mean to walk in the truth? And that brings us to point number two, and it's what John, interestingly enough, has to say about love. Because if you take another look at verse four, you'll see that John talks about Christ's followers as walking in the truth. You see, once you come to know Jesus, everything else changes. And in particular, how you relate to other people. John says in verse 5, I am not writing you a new command, but one we have had from the beginning. I ask that we love one another. But then notice this. This is love. It's not necessarily how you feel. It's that you walk in obedience to his commands. As you have heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. You do notice how the particular passage in Leviticus 19, of all places, spoke of loving your neighbour as yourself. This wasn't something Jesus invented. The Lord had revealed that to Israel through Moses from the very beginning. Indeed, all of the law could be summarised as a command to love. What does it mean to love your neighbour? It means you don't covet what they have. What does it mean to love God? It means that you don't take his name in vain. That's why God said that to defraud or slander or to do anything that endangers your neighbour in Leviticus 19, 
is the opposite of love. Knowing the truth completely changes the way we relate to other people, doesn't it? Which is quite frankly why a large number of people find, well, they find the truth so hard to accept. Because it's just so much easier to be selfish, to feather our own nests, to advance our own careers, to do that which only fulfills our own pleasures, and most of all that satisfies our own desires. So that I can do what I want to do, irrespective of the effect that that might have on everyone else around me. The problem is, is that our world defines love as just feelings. But the Bible says there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. Coming into a relationship with the one who is true, and remember Jesus says, I am the truth, the way, the life. It changes everything. Indeed, it's one of the defining characteristics. It's the fruit of somebody who has been saved. It's that we love one another. This is how John puts it in 1 John chapter 2. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother lives in the light and there is nothing in him to make him stumble. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks around in darkness. He does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded him. Can I say, friends, that's why it's impossible to say that you know God and you love him and not be part of a church. You can't say that you love God who you don't see and not love his people that you do. Now that really brings us to the third and final point that the letter of 2 John raises and it's the warning about discerning the truth. Now this might seem like a little bit of a big jump to make. You might even be thinking, whoa, wait a minute, you were just talking about the importance of showing love to other people and now all of a sudden you're talking about the danger of being duped by the devil. How are those two topics related to one another? Well, verse 7 actually starts with the word because. Uh, Some of the NIV translations don't have it, but the passage literally says at the end of verse 6, As you have heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. Because or for many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. You see, John warns us that there will be many people who will try to lead you and I away from the truth. And that their goal about each and every one of them is to deny the truth about Jesus. But the best way to avoid being deceived by them is by walking in the truth. Do you see the connection? There was this guy in my congregation. We lived in Outback, New South Wales for about seven years, a little town called Weewall. And this particular farmer had a very, very close friend who worked for the CIA. 
And he told me once that when they were training all of their operatives, and I've since found out that they do this in other places as well, when they want to train them to um, spot counterfeit notes, they strangely never ever show them any false currency. Instead, what they do is that they make them experts at examining and, and evaluating only genuine currency. That way, so the thinking went, whenever they came across a fake one, they would spot it straight away. You see, they knew the truth so well that they could immediately pick a fake. And that's what the Bible is saying for us. The best way to avoid being duped by false teaching is to become an expert in the truth. To actually have the truth of God's word so shape us and form us that we can immediately spot it. As Spurgeon used to say, the best way to see that a stick is crooked is to lay a straight stick beside it. Once again, though, it's not just a matter of merely having a right theological understanding or doctrine as important as that is. Because remember that John says that knowing the truth will result in living a life of what? Of love. And it's in specifically living a life of love that that is the best protection against being spiritually deceived. Because a life of love is the complete opposite to what the devil wants to achieve. Again, remember what John says, or has Jesus, records Jesus as saying in his gospel, the devil comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But Jesus says, I have come that they might have life, and life to the full. You see, Satan's goal is to make our labours in the Lord unfruitful and ineffective. And the way he will do that often is through the claims of somebody who claims to be a Christian teacher. Someone who comes along with a new insight that you'd never seen before. You see, it's not that Satan necessarily makes you give up on following Jesus. Don't get me wrong, the devil would be pleased if you did that. More often than not, an even better and more effective strategy that Satan employs is to tempt us to move on from Jesus. To leave behind the simple truth of the gospel, as I explained to the children before, and to go on to something else. You see, just take another look at what John goes on to say in verse 9. Because this is one of Satan's oldest and most effective strategies in leading people astray. He says, anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. We've come a long way, haven't we? And as I said at the beginning, while short, you can hopefully see that this book has some incredibly relevant and challenging things to say. By way of conclusion, I'd like to say that this is why the church is so important. For we've been saved to be in relationship, not just with God, but with one another. Just take a look again at what John says in verse 12. 
It might seem at first like a throwaway line, but if you stop and consider what John is saying, it's really quite profound. See, John says in verse 12, I have much to write to you, but I don't want to use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to visit you and talk with you face to face so that our joy may be complete. Now, I think this single verse really sums up and brings together everything that John has been saying. Because coming into a relationship with God automatically brings you into a relationship with one another. The gospel really is cross-shaped. It's vertical, but it's also horizontal. It brings you in relationship with the Father, but it also brings you into relationship with brothers and sisters. One of the missionaries that I've served with overseas said that the people in Thailand find this verse really confronting. You see, they're so respectful of people's personal space that they're always remaining or keeping a respectful distance from one another. So the expression that I hope to meet you face to face um, is just too personal. Uh, they use the expression in Thai, which is, I hope to see you that we meet, might meet body to body. Face to face is just too intimate. You imagine their shock then when you realise that what John is literally saying is Greek, I hope to come and visit you that we might speak to one another mouth to mouth. That's how important, that's how intimate our Christian fellowship is. One of the things COVID, I think, has revealed is just how important corporate worship is for the body of Christ, isn't it? Indeed, one of the tragedies during this period is how mental health problems and suicides have skyrocketed. It's because we've been made for a relationship with God and with one another. You know, friends, the blessing of coming to church each week is something you'll experience here that you won't experience at any other point during the week. For we've been redeemed by God to be in relationship with him and with one another, to carry one another's burdens, to speak a kind word, to show a loving action. C.S. Lewis once said that the way to true and lasting joy was this. Jesus, others, yourself. Joy. So let me exhort you to find or follow a, a similar path. First, live your life for the truth of Jesus. Second, live your life for others. And only after those two things have been fulfilled, consider what you'll do for yourself. Now that might be backward to how you're living now. It might mean that you have to change the course of your life and how it's heading. Or maybe even a decision that you're presently faced with. But in the end, live your life in that order. Because Jesus says, if you do, you will know true and lasting joy. Because that is why he's come. Well, why don't we spend some time in prayer, shall we? Let's pray. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you for your word. For it is truth. And it reveals to us the one and only one who is true. Lord, what a great delight and joy it is to come into your presence this, your Lord's day, 
the day where you broke the power of death once and for all through your resurrection. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us to love one another. Lord, you would help us by your grace to forgive one another. Just as we have been forgiven. Father, you know the dark and deepest recesses, recesses of our lives, the pain and the grief that we carry. We pray that you would heal us. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would transform us by your Holy Spirit, that we would love one another deeply and sincerely and from the heart. Father, we pray that we would love in obedience to your commands. And Father, we thank you most of all for Christ who kept the law perfectly for us, who died on the cross and rose again from the dead so we might be forgiven and set free and have eternal life. And we praise you that he will never let us out of his hand. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.